Welcome to the September 2017 edition of RehabCast. Progress in Rehabilitation Research, the ACRM's International Rehabilitation Conference, is coming up right here in Atlanta starting on October 23rd. It's never too late to register, but if somehow you don't manage to make it this year, definitely follow along on social media. We're going to be using the hashtag PIRR2017. Now this year's conference marks the debut of Launchpad, that's the ACRM's own Shark Tank style pitch fest. Come pitch your original and innovative rehabilitation technology business or solution to a panel of rehab industry experts and an audience of clinicians, researchers, engineers, and decision makers. The judges will include David Rue, who is Chief Medical Officer at Samsung Electronics America. So if you're an early stage startup or maybe just a lab who hasn't gotten that far yet, plan to join in. This attention might be just the ticket your company needs in its quest to bring the next big thing in rehab to the market, and I look forward to having the winner join me on an episode of RehabCast. In a wee bit, we'll be learning something about the health impact of Irish set dancing in a fascinating new study out of Ireland that's featured in the September issue of the Archives of PM&R. That's the subject of our featured interview. But first, it's time for the news. During the course of that examination, uh, Dr. Graham uh, indicated to him or to her uh, that he was not going to prescribe any uh, opioid drugs. Uh, Jarvis became upset with that conflict and an argument ensued. Um, it was Dr. Graham's opinion that chronic pain uh, d- did not require prescription drugs. Um, they separated uh, Jarvis and his wife. At some point, Jarvis came back. Dr. Graham, just before 1 o'clock, left uh, the orthopedic building to travel to the rehabilitation building. Uh, During the course of that traveling, came in contact with Jarvis again. There was again an argument. Um, Dr. Graham continued on to the rehabilitation building uh, where he parked. Jarvis followed him, uh, got out. There were two witnesses who were outside in close proximity. Jarvis went to those two witnesses, told them to leave. They saw a gun. Uh, Jarvis then proceeded to shoot and kill uh, Dr. Graham. Jarvis then left, went to his friend's home, uh, gave indication that he was no longer going to be around. That friend contacted law enforcement, concerned for uh, Jarvis' safety, and before law enforcement could arrive, Jarvis killed himself. That's an Indiana prosecutor talking about the death of Dr. Todd Graham. Dr. Graham was a well-respected physiatrist who practiced at the St. Joseph Rehabilitation Institute in Mishawaka, Indiana, and he was a partner in his private practice, South Bend Orthopedics. Dr. Graham was double board certified in PM&R and pain medicine. His son, Travis Graham, will be finishing his residency in anesthesiology soon at Indiana University, and he had hoped to practice alongside his father starting next year. That can't happen now. On the morning of July 26th, Dr. Graham conducted a follow-up appointment with a patient he had first seen a month before at South Bend Orthopedics and made a routine decision. He decided against opioid therapy. The patient's husband became irate, demanding the prescription to the extent that Dr. Graham started recording the encounter on his phone out of a sense of personal protection. That afternoon, the man fatally shot Dr. Graham in a parking lot. Graham volunteered his medical services for the University of Notre Dame athletic teams, and he philanthropically supported the Logan Center, an Indiana charity that provides a range of quality of life services for people with developmental and intellectual disabilities. He 
Serving others were like planting seeds. Friends say perhaps Dr. Todd Graham would have a garden. Since 2008, he's been actively involved in uh, one of our events. We call it the Logan Garden Party, uh, which supports our autism services programs. And um, he's just always been uh, a very much of a presence in those events. Including hosting the garden party at his home in 2013. The money raised adding to the diverse garden of people Logan Center was able to pour into. Someone supports Logan financially. Um, that often allows us to provide a, a wide array of services uh, for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Similar flowers outside Logan Center, you'll also see dotting the IU South Bend Medical School campus. While practicing medicine for more than three decades, Dr. Todd, as he was known by his patients, also made sure students could afford a medical education. Despite the fact that he wasn't, he didn't go to school here or anything, but as part of the community, he saw the value of medical education here. But then also the tributes from his patients really are powerful. Facebook messages from patients like Dana Hummer say, he made my husband walk good again. Diana Singleton says, he kept me walking and when I had a car accident in May. Proof his impact keeps on blooming. Some patients say they will miss the way Dr. Todd looked them in the eye, shook their hand, and made them feel special each time they saw him. The whole sorry episode of Dr. Graham's death has rocked the medical community. Pain specialists like Dr. Graham in particular can all recount some uncomfortable encounters surrounding opioids. His death doesn't stem just from the opioid abuse crisis in this country, the epidemic of guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them played a role as well. Healthcare workers are 24 times more likely to be victims of workplace violence than the average worker in America. The American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians conducted a survey of its members a couple of years ago, and they learned that 52% had been threatened, 7% of the time involving a gun. I don't have to give you guys examples of a workplace violence incident that has happened in the last several months because it happens every week. In, the, in North America, all you got to do is pull up your browser and you see something that's happened at a school, an industrial area, a nightclub, uh, a corporate area, um, a law firm. It doesn't, no one is, is discriminated against in workplace violence, all right? Especially in the medical arena, it's, it's four times as likely to happen in a medical facility, just on the mere nature of what you do and the protocols that are in place here, all right? So if we can get in on the front end of prevention, that's the key. So what am I talking about prevention? Your policy that's in place already gives you guys some identifying behaviors to take note of and report if, you come, if, if you're aware of them, all right? Um, and this could be any, anybody, another employee, it could be another stakeholder, maybe it's a family of a patient, maybe it's a vendor, maybe it's another contract employee, who knows? Report actions that are intimidating, hostile, you know, threatening, all, any of those types of behaviors. Report them up the chain of command to your supervisor or to anybody in the HR team. That's audio from the main auditorium at Shepherd Center where I work. My hospital is working with Fortress Consulting, a local Atlanta firm that is training all our staff in basic strategies to head off workplace violence and active shooter scenarios. It's mind-boggling that people who've dedicated their careers to caring now have to spend any time at all thinking about self-preservation. But this is the United States in 2017. We are societally frayed. We are politically divided to the extent that people don't even agree on basic facts. And we are awash in weapons. We are economically vulnerable. 
and we are tenuously insured. And now we find ourselves hiring consultants to teach doctors, nurses, and therapists how to fight or flee. Another high-quality paper confirms the benefits of exercise on getting a good night's rest. Prior systematic reviews have focused on aerobic exercises, but a new paper in Sleep Medicine Reviews focuses on resistance exercise training and finds that it, too, leads to subjective improvements in sleep, improvements that are above and beyond those seen with hypnotic drugs. Overall, sleep quality improved, sleep latency decreased, sleep efficiency improved, uh, there were decreases in mid-sleep disturbance, decreased daytime dysfunction. There's only one study that showed clear objective improvements on sleep EEG, but that study showed fewer nighttime arousals and a shorter amount of time in stage one non-REM sleep. That's less time in light sleep where you're easily aroused. In older adults who are doing resistance exercises three times a week, they're seeing moderate to large beneficial effects on sleep quality and daytime function. Now, mind you, chronic pharmacological management of insomnia in older adults increases morbidity and mortality, so exercise has just the opposite effect. In general, it appears it doesn't matter whether you pick aerobic exercise or resistance exercise, do what you like, and recommend your sleepless patients pick whichever they like. The more vigorously you exercise, the better you'll sleep. The combination of resistance and aerobic exercise doesn't seem to work any better than either modality alone. Why does exercise work for sleep? Well, the authors point out that sleep disturbance is a major feature of depression, and exercise is certainly well known to help alleviate depression. Neuropsychological measures generally improve with exercise as well. Now, certainly the physical changes and energy expenditure, pain relief, and even body temperature changes could all be having an effect too. Increasingly, TBI is understood as a risk factor for future ischemic stroke, with studies computing significantly increased risk for up to five years post-TBI, boosting the average population level risk of 0.2%, upwards anywhere from 1% to 8%. A major new study in the journal Stroke, spearheaded by Craig Hospital researchers, adds to this growing literature with a close look at strokes that are occurring in the initial hours and days following TBI. This TBI Model Systems National Database study looked at seven and a half years of data and found acute ischemic strokes occurring at about 2.5% of the almost 6,500 patients. Now, as expected, a lot of these strokes are occurring with arterial dissections that are occurring in high-velocity accidents. Evidence of intracranial mass effect, especially compressed basal cisterns and midline shift, proved to be a stroke risk factor, as did subcortical white matter damage. It's not surprising that patients with co-occurring stroke in addition to TBI ended up with lower FEM scores, 13 points lower on average, and scored almost two points worse on the disability rating scale. Strokes occurred about a median day of 25 post-TBI, so this is certainly something to watch out for in acute rehabilitation programs. The authors note that if a substantial portion of individuals hospitalized with moderate to severe TBI were also found to have similar incidents of acute ischemic stroke, that this would equate uh, to hundreds or thousands of new ischemic strokes annually in the United States, likely attributable to TBI, with a substantially larger number worldwide. 
In the acute phase, what to do once these strokes occur soon after TBI is a significant clinical challenge, given that TPA guidelines are ruling out recent brain trauma. But the authors note that these guidelines leave open room for experienced clinicians to make their own call. Endovascular thrombectomy is certainly becoming an increasingly available option as well. It's time for the September featured interview. Joining me from Limerick, Ireland is Dr. Joanne Shanahan. She's a PhD physiotherapist at the University of Limerick and a longtime dance instructor who's turned her interest in dance to the subject of her research as well. She's a postdoc at Limerick's Department of Clinical Therapies. Joanne is a lead author of Dancing for Parkinson's Disease, a randomized trial of Irish set dancing compared with usual care that's published in the September issue of the Archives of PMNR. Joanne, what interested you about Irish set dancing in particular? I suppose I have been set dancing all my life. Uh, I started set dancing when I was uh, five years of age and I've been dancing since. And it's an activity that I really, really enjoy. So when I got the opportunity to actually do research and marry my skills in physiotherapy with my love for dancing um I just um really flew at at the opportunity to take that up and see if I could bring the same joy to other people so you were teaching people how to set dance as an instructor as well long before you got involved in clinical research yeah I was yeah I was I was teaching set dancing when I would have I started teaching set dancing when I originally started my undergraduate degree in physiotherapy um previous to that I was just um dancing but I started teaching dancing when I started uh going to um university originally so I would have had uh, a good few years experience before this project do you even have an idea that you might want to research dancing in particular before you went to physiotherapy or were you surprised to find that your interest in dancing kind of dovetailed ultimately with physiotherapy there happened to be a line of research in that area that was a complete surprise to me that I had um, interest in research. To be honest, when I started in physiotherapy, I suppose, you know, as an, you know, an 18 year old started um, starting in college, you know, I suppose the idea of research would have completely been um, at the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as I progressed through the degree and became more familiar with research, and I suppose I, uh, when I did my final year dissertation and my undergraduate degree, I got a feel for it. So then when I did get the opportunity, you, you know, I did jump at it because, you know, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity um, that would never come up my way again. And I just felt that it was really a way for me to marry, you know, both both interests. Now, for somebody who doesn't know about set dancing in particular, as opposed to other other types of uh, Irish cultural dance in particular, I mean, how is it, how would you best describe it as, and where does it fit according to other types of dance? So set dancing is a group form of dance. Normally you're dancing um, in a group of eight people, and they're, eight people are positioned within four couples, so in a square position. And the, what you do then is you dance 
a lot of different multi-directional rotation movements together with your partner and with the other group dancers. You know, we did an interview in the first episode of Rehab Cast about Nordic pole walking. Folks with Parkinson's also seem to benefit from that. Uh, part of the rationale for that apparent benefit is its recruitment of upper body muscle groups in particular. Now, of course, Irish set dancing is going to do that as well. Folks are holding hands. Uh, they're using their upper body also, right? There would be upper body um, use within set dancing because there would be a lot of uh, holding hands with your partner, but there would also be a lot of, um, you know, you'd be doing different arm movements. You could be reaching up high to make um, a star um, with, with, you know, three other people, or you might be holding in a wall's hold. So you'd be, you'd be, you'd be using your arm, your, particularly your shoulders, within a, within a lot of different ranges. So that makes a lot of sense. And then one thing we didn't discuss in the context of Nordic pole walking that, that certainly may have applied there, but more clearly applies to set dancing is the social factor and how important that may be for folks with uh, PD and just uh, maybe the elderly population in general. Could you talk a little bit about that, what you believe the, the social role may be? Set dancing is actually, it's a form of social dance. Um, that would be, I suppose, its classification. Uh, when you when you get down to the core of set dancing and when you're actually practicing set dancing and you know involved in the actual dynamic of set dancing it is a very sociable and enjoyable activity because you come together with so many people from so so many different areas you get to meet people and you know make friends with people that you might never have done otherwise if you hadn't kind of delved into this community of set dancing it's it's very much so a community within itself um and especially because the nature of set dancing you get up you dance and you sit down and you know, you have a rest and you have a conversation with other people, as well as that when you're actually dancing, you are, you know, you're moving around with other people and you're, you know, you're laughing and, you know, you're trying to think of what's coming next. And, you're, you know, the person you're asking the person beside you and they're helping you. And it's very much all about, I suppose, you know, conversation throughout the dance, as well as when, you know, aside from when you're dancing and, you 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 get to know people in the sense that you know you're talking about you know what they're doing at their dance you know what 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 kind of dances would we like to do next and you're getting to know a bit about what other activities they're involved in as well so there's a real I suppose whole life social aspect within set dancing itself and it's very much a community you know when you join a dance community you know you you don't just have your local community you have your dance community as well um, and I think that's a very important um, strong sense that comes with the socialization in set dance. Wonderful. And this is, as we mentioned earlier, part of a larger body of uh, research in the, in the field in general. And in fact, you and your group a couple of years ago published a meta-analysis also in the archives uh, looking at the role of dance and, and Parkinson's disease as well. Um, having having kind of taken undertaken that review of the literature and kind of seeing the state of the quality of the research and kind of what had been done so far with different types of dancing, um, did you get kind of an impression of, of what you felt were the, the advantages and, I don't know, any possibly disadvantages of Irish set dancing versus other types of dance that are being used? Um, yeah, well, I think a big part of what um, I suppose I, I both recognized, I suppose, from the research and both, I suppose, from my own personal experience of that, of dance, is that dance is very much um, related to I, I believe and needs to be investigated further what people are used to looking at within particular, you know, maybe in particular communities or countries and what very much relates to people's culture. 
Mm. Um, because if if people are familiar t- with looking at an activity and seeing an activity, there is an element of motor learning within that itself, just from the action observation. And it makes it easier for people to both learn it themselves and both to understand, I suppose, the background to this and maybe why it might have an effect on them or have this meaning meaning with them for them to take it up as part of their lives. I think that's one thing um, that does come um, a lot with the dance is the cultural side of it and how and what I suppose is the overall participation within a country within that form of dance and is it kind of a popular form of dance and I think that's very important. From the actual review itself um, and the research that's out there, uh, I think it's it's evident that partner dance seems to be really a form of dance that that is particularly suitable for people with Parkinson's disease because it does have that sense of security, you know, for people with balance issues. Um, and I think that's very important safety wise. And also, I think it's very encouraging for people because they do, I suppose, have, if you like, a safety net in that they're, you know, mm. th- that they do have support. And mm-hmm. I think that's um, very important. Also, from the research, I think the the pacing aspect of the dance is very important in that the dance you know, we would be started off at a slower pace than maybe you would do with other populations. Um, you know, for someone maybe who would be considered a healthy adult with no um other um you know health conditions. Uh, I think that's very important for people mm-hmm. to understand is that you know the pace of the class and the pace that you teach it and the way that you teach is altered to suit the needs of the individuals. And I think that's very important not only from a teaching aspect but also from the people with um you know, with Parkinson's disease who are attending the classes because obviously they want to feel a sense of security and a sense of belonging and changing the teaching aspect really does create that and really help to encourage their motivation and as well as that sense of achievement, mm-hmm. um, which is very important um, for, I think, for for continuing activity and actually liking the activity. And, and that is definitely reflected in how you, you know, organize your trials, certainly. I mean, th- these are not just general classes open to the community that people are participating in, but it's very much designed for the PD population. And indeed, you talk about the fact that uh, uh, the the songs that you used and at least the routines that you used were kind of more selected for that population. The rhythm is a little bit slower to accommodate. There's more time for learning and so forth. Um, so this was a randomized trial where you had compared uh, 90 folks uh, randomized into a, a usual care group uh, versus the intervention of these of these weekly classes along with doing some homework ideally although the participation that wasn't wasn't too great also doing some dancing at home uh, again versus the the usual care now the usual care group uh, it sounds like there wasn't anything too fancy in that from what I could parse out could you describe that were they asked to do anything uh, no so you yeah so usual care just consisted of uh, their usual medication treatment mm-hmm. um, there was no additional therapies that the the usual care group um, received during the actual uh, intervention period Okay. Then the dance group then continued with their usual medication treatment um, and they, in addition, attended the dance classes um, and it completed the dance intervention. Now, one might imagine that if a usual care group got some other type of intervention, if they were asked to do something, the comparison might have been a little bit tougher. But on the other hand, usual care comparisons are a well-accepted approach. What do you consider the pros and cons of the usual care comparison? I suppose the pro is that it's it, you have a, a baseline. You have just the usual, the normal, the normal day 
um, and you can compare to that. But a con is very much so that I suppose keeping up the motivation to you know continue us in the trial and come back for assessments it's much harder if I suppose there's a gap in contact between you know the research team and the participants um, and that is something for consideration in future in you know in future studies about how can we motivate people to to, to continue to you know to participate you know if the, if they are in you know I suppose allocated to the control or the usual care group or you know that 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 group that's that's not the actual I suppose um a group the intervention that you are examining the effect of and I think it's 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 a very hard thing with randomized control trials in general to get that balance of we we want to compare to normal but we also want to you know keep people involved in the study as well and and you know i suppose entice people i suppose to take part in research because ultimately research is what is going to drive you know healthcare forward this was a smaller trial designed to assess the feasibility of a larger trial but even within those constraints you saw some useful results including parkinson's disease rating scale improvements with a trend towards significance in that uh, both groups also saw some improvement in the quality of life measure how do you explain that both groups appear to have seen some benefit there, given that the usual care group uh, didn't get a particular intervention? Well, I suppose there's always going to be things outside the, you know, the control of a study that, you know, you can control and, you know, you, you, you mightn't always know the true answer. But I suppose it, it is possible that when when the control group came back, you know, they were they were just they were going after their intervention, they were going to be starting or sorry, after their ten week usual care um period, they were they were offered the set dancing intervention and they knew that they were going to be starting mm -hmm. to get that. So it could be that, you know, they were actually looking forward to actually starting the intervention. It's possible, um, you know, we can't say that for definite or anything, but it is, um, I suppose, a, a possible, um, uh, I suppose, answer for that. And maybe even just some of the placebo effect of uh, interacting with the fantastic research staff. You know, they were just interacting. Uh, exactly, by... <laughs> yeah, there a placebo effect as well, yeah. 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 One difficult uh, measure you had there was this uh, attrition rate being significantly higher than you were shooting for. Uh, you wanted ideally less than 20%. It was over 40% in, in both groups. Um, what are your thoughts about that and what you could do to get that, get that down? Um, yeah, well, I think um, a big part of um, getting the attrition rate down would be maybe education. So educating patients about the importance of research and why it's, um, you know, important to actually, you know, participate in research and, you know, try and continue your participation in research. You know, with 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 when you're when you are doing research in a you know a, a population who does have a progressive condition, dropouts will be expected as well. You know, because it's the, the 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 progression is variable, and you know you will have people you know who do maybe become ill for different reasons. Um, and that, but I think education is is a big part of it. Um, also as you said earlier, maybe it might help to bring down um, the attrition rate if if particularly if people understand the importance of the actual assessments and the the benefit of the assessments even to them um and to overall um research evidence because a lot of our dropouts did happen at the assessment stages as opposed to during the actual intervention you know the 10 week period um so i think that's very important yeah and i suppose maybe that could be addressed by um 
augmenting the study design somehow so that something is occurring a little bit more during the assessment phase to keep them coming back. Again, you mentioned certainly the, the attendance rate at, for the classes was very high, 93.5%, uh, which is even higher than some other other dance trials. So people who were doing it clearly didn't, didn't enjoy it and keep coming back. Yeah, yeah, that, that was very evident that people really did um, enjoy it and keep coming back. And what was very evident, I suppose, from looking on um, is the difference, um, you know, for me in the people when they started and finished the trial, you know, the difference in, I suppose, how happy they looked just as a as an you know an onlooker um being around these people I, that that was very striking to me wonderful yeah i'm sure you guys had a lot of uh, good experiences in terms of conducting the trial interacting with people and, and kind of seeing the soft benefits uh, as it were you are very very interested in conducting a larger multi-center even international trial how is that work going uh, what do you think about the prospects uh, for getting that done yeah, well, uh, currently um, we are in, I suppose, I suppose in the middle of um, starting to, to organize future studies and we're interested, you know, in continuing our research in people with Parkinson's disease um, on a larger scale and also uh, interested in looking at other populations as well. So I suppose it's quite um, a busy time in a, in a research planning stage for us and, you know, hopefully, you know, everything will progress on for us. You have done trials just in the elderly population separate from Parkinson's. How do you feel that the, the ease of conducting that research or any changes there or any changes in, in the outcomes that, that you were seeing in just kind of more of a general versus Parkinson's population? Yeah, well, I suppose um, the research I would have been part in um, in older adults um, was with um, adults aged over 55 looking at um, long-term um dancers versus non-dancers um balance quality life and functional fitness so that would be the research i would have done so it would have been a very different experience in that you know the, we the, the it was just a once-off assessment um of these interventions so it was a comparison group so i think at this stage um it would be i suppose impossible for me to say what what, what it's like running a trial with you know two different populations uh, you know an rct trial but um, I suppose that'll all, I suppose, come in the future when we start to investigate different populations and we can we can look at, you know, maybe some of the the differences across populations. And maybe, you know, there is a qualitative piece there, um, you know, maybe a focus group design or something um, looking at, uh, you know, where you actually speak to different populations about their experience of taking part in trials so that we can start to improve um, on attrition levels, you know, right across the board, randomized control trials, and I suppose help to make them, I suppose, more participant, I suppose, friendly, maybe, if you like. Now, this trial, all everything occurred in, in Ireland, although I see you have some participation uh, with a researcher from Italy and another from, from Australia. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So we had... Um, we had, an, I suppose, an international um, research team, and we were also quite multidisciplinary in that we had, you know, um, Dr. Vopley from Italy as a neurologist, um, myself and Dr. Um, Amanda Clifford, um, our physiotherapist, and me as a set dancing teacher, um, Meg Morris, it, D Professor Meg Morris is also a physiotherapist, and uh, Dr. Oren Ibreen, um is a lecturer in dance um, in the University of Limerick. So we had quite um, a diverse range um, of skills within our research team and I think that's really important because it brings 
you know, so many different aspects, um, both of the care with Parkinson's, but also loads of different ideas together um, when, when you're designing a project, which is very important. And, you know, we, we, we are going to continue our collaboration into the future. Wonderful. Uh, I suppose it'll help too if you if you get to this stage uh, as you're looking forward towards getting a more international study together with populations in other countries. There has been a broad uh, Irish diaspora, as we all know, and it's a relatively popular culture throughout the world. I think that you'll find there's a lot of people who will be engaged with the idea of Irish set dancing, although they have no personal experience of that prior that that should be interesting as well to to get folks yeah that should be yeah that should be a really interesting aspect to to, i suppose learn about um i suppose people's knowledge of irish culture and i suppose maybe their 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 knowledge of irish set dancing because you know like obviously irish um you know step dancing would be a very popular activity and you'd see that highlighted more loads across um you know internationally um, around the world but um yeah to, to start looking at set dancing w- would be very interesting you can start with kind of the cities where river dance toured perhaps <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that 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 might um that you you might you might find loads of interest yeah Joanne, I also understand that you're making an effort to get the word out and educate about Irish set dancing for Parkinson's disease. Well, I suppose just as part of my own um, PhD research, um, what I actually did uh, with all the research that I conducted was I developed an educational resource um, for Irish set dancing teachers to um, help them and inform them about teaching set dancing to people with Parkinson's disease. Because I suppose there are set dancing classes um, in Ireland for people with Parkinson's disease now, as well as um, the UK and in Italy as well. Um, so what we wanted to make sure was that set dancing teachers were informed um, and, and about Parkinson's disease and about the modifications that needed to be made to the class. So I developed um, an evidence-based um, educational resource, both using the evidence um, that I had gathered along with evidence from other um, research um, papers. And also we spoke to individuals with Parkinson's disease and set dancing teachers to find out a bit more about um, what they wanted from set dancing classes and the information gaps as well, in particular, that set dancing teachers had. So we developed um, this educational resource um, for them. So it contains information, um, you know, on Parkinson's disease, um, how some how different symptoms might affect um, set dancing and different modifications um, and suggestions for actually teaching set dancing to people with Parkinson's disease to make it, I suppose, an e- a simpler process um, for the set dancing teachers. Yeah, I downloaded that document, and yeah, it looks it's very well done. Uh, you know, good graphics and everything, and it's definitely something people need to know about. Where can they Where can they find it online? Um, it's on um, the University of Limerick, um, so the institutional repository, um, and it's freely available. Um, so if you, um, I suppose the easy thing would be to to do would be to um, Google my name along with U L I R. Um, and that will bring it up and um, it should bring it up the first thing on Google and you'll be able to click in and you'll be able to access my different research articles um, along with the educational resource. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much again for uh, for joining me today, Dr. Shanahan. Uh, this is, uh, again, very interesting research. I look forward to seeing what, what comes next. It's uh, uh, certainly an enjoyable social activity for all, all different types of people to, to engage in. It makes a lot of sense for the Parkinson's population in particular. Uh, again, thank you. No, thank you very much. Thanks.
And that does it for this September issue of RehabCast. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and please do share it with your colleagues. As always, you can email me at docvox at gmail.com. Again, we hope to see you here in Atlanta. October is just around the corner. podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.